Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to you wherever you are in the world. This is James Schofield, the writer of the stories in season two of this podcast, Behind the Bottom Line. Can I ask you a question? What do you really know about the people you work with? What I've learned is that everybody has an unusual story to tell about themselves. And these stories might be funny, they might be sad, or they might be frankly weird. And over the years, I've turned these people and events into short stories for different magazines. In each episode of Behind the Bottom Line, I read you my original story, and afterwards I tell you something about its real-life background. Today's story is called Castles in the Air. And while you're listening, and before you say to yourself, that could never happen to me, just ask yourself, have you ever bought a lottery ticket? Castles in the Air Horst, said Jim as they looked at the photographs. This is a gold mine. Horst agreed. We'll write your chance to own a castle and they'll go crazy. An outsider would have been surprised at their enthusiasm. Schloss Hoffenberg was a small 18th century castle just outside Leipzig. The windows and doors had been boarded up for 10 years and there were holes in the roof. Dr. Frankenstein might have been persuaded to move in, but even he would have demanded rent reduction. However, Horst and Jim had always been optimists. They'd met in the 1950s when Jim was a young soldier, and he'd caught Horst stealing cigarettes and whiskey from a storeroom at the British Army base in Paderborn to sell on the black market. After Horst had explained the enormous return on investment and offered to make Jim his partner, Jim decided to go into business with him. They made an excellent team, and, by the time Jim left the army, the base had ordered enough tobacco and alcohol to poison the entire regiment. Luckily, Horst and Jim had diverted the goods into the local economy. Jim decided to stay in Germany, and the two of them lived quite well during the boom years of the 1960s, selling fake Beatles records that they'd recorded with the local cover band. In the 1970s, they moved into what they called financial consultancy. This mainly involved taking suitcases full of banknotes to Zurich for rich doctors who wanted to avoid paying income tax. But the 1980s were bad. Horst lost money financing a football club that went from the first division to the fourth in the time it takes most people to brush their teeth, Jim managed to do the same with expensive divorces from Gloria and Heidi. So, when the Berlin Wall came down in November 1989, the two men rubbed their hands and thought about how they could introduce the new citizens in the eastern part of reunited Germany to the joys of capitalism. Unfortunately, this didn't prove as easy as they'd hoped. The new citizens didn't have much money, and by the early 1990s they had even less, as the government shut down all their factories and made them unemployed. We need to look at what they've got, and then find people elsewhere who want it, said Horst. But what is it? And who will buy it? It was on a holiday visit to Schloss Neuschwanstein that Jim found the answer. Castles! he said the next time he saw Horst. And Americans. Americans love castles, and Germany is full of them. 
Jim had discovered that nobody was quite sure who some of the castles in eastern Germany belonged to. They'd been voluntarily, or involuntarily, handed over to the National Socialists in the 1930s, were confiscated by the Russians in the 1940s, and appropriated by the East German government in the 1950s. You mean, we sell castles to Americans? asked Horst doubtfully. When we don't even own them? No, answered Jim. We sell the dream of a castle to Americans. Here's how. The plan was simple. First, they got addresses of people in the US with German-sounding names. Then, they printed brochures showing attractive pictures of Schloss Hoffenberg. They wrote a letter pretending to be lawyers representing the administrators of the castle, saying that ownership was unclear and that there was the possibility the person receiving the letter was the rightful owner. If the person sent family details and a processing fee of $199, Horst and Jim would carry out the necessary investigations and see whether this was indeed the case. To their delight, the scam was an instant success. They sent out thousands of letters, and only a small percentage of people replied with any money, but this was more than enough. Horst and Jim waited a few weeks and then sent each client a polite letter saying the castle, unfortunately, belonged to someone else after all. The processing fee, however, was not returned. So life was looking very good until the morning Howard Spittlein III from Texas came to visit them in their modern new office in Berlin. You all the gentleman that sent me the brochure about a castle? he asked, with an accent that left both Jim and Horst scratching their heads. Well, you all ain't no lawyers. Maybe the police would like to know about this. After some discussion, it became clear that Howard actually was more interested in a deal than in making trouble. What he wanted was a castle on his ranch in Texas. My neighbors all reckon they're pretty classy, but they ain't none got a castle, said Howard. You get me a castle, real castle, and I won't say nothing about your little scam. Horst and Jim got started. But the towns of eastern Germany were unwilling to export their castles, even though they couldn't afford to repair them. After six months, Horst and Jim hadn't managed to find anything, and Howard was getting impatient. There must be a castle somewhere, said Horst, almost without hope, that the local people want to get rid of. But where is it? It was on a holiday visit to Transylvania that Jim found the answer. Castles in the Air was written for Business Spotlight in 2014. And the source of the story really dates back uh, of quite a few years earlier to one of the most significant events of my lifetime, which was, of course, the um, collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and then the subsequent um, unification of East and West Germany. Um, and this led to uh, a lot of difficulties for the state in knowing how to manage the resources that were then available 
uh, to them. Who did these companies, who did these factories, who did these buildings belong to? And this was something that wasn't easy to resolve because um, the owners were very difficult to, to define. The area which interested me in particular were the, was the fact that there were these uh, really amazing buildings um, um, and nobody really knew who they belonged to. And but also the, the problem being, of course, that a lot of them were in terribly bad condition uh, and the state didn't want to take over the responsibility of renovating all of them. So uh, it was something that, that interested me, this whole area. I've also always had a sneaking admiration for con men. Uh, one of my favorite films a few years ago was the film with Leo DiCaprio in it, uh, Catch Me If You Can, about the con man Frank Abagnale. Um, who started working as a con artist at 15. Looking back in history, uh, one of the most successful and fascinating con artists was Victor Lustig, who was an Austro-Hungarian, and he was the man who not only managed to sell the Eiffel Tower, uh, which is in itself a, an amazing story, um, he also actually managed to con the prohibition gangster Al Capone, uh, out of money. He did, of course, eventually end up in jail, as of course did Frank Abagnale. Um, so these people aren't always, uh, aren't always successful, uh, long term. But what they manage to do in the time when they are, uh, operational, so to speak, is, I think, amazing. Uh, recent times, we have, of course, the cryptocurrency scams, uh, in particular, or the most famous of them is OneCoin, set up by apparently a former McKinsey consultant, Rita Ugnatova, uh, from Bulgaria. Um, and you can hear uh, a f an amazing podcast called The Missing Crypto Queen from the BBC. I strongly recommend it. Um, and on that podcast, you can even hear examples of this woman, Rita Ugnatova, um, taking part or running enormous conferences, events in uh, large, large halls and where she convinces people to invest in a totally fictitious uh, cryptocurrency. So I don't think this is something that's going to go away anytime soon. I used to collect, but they seem to have now disappeared somewhat. Perhaps it's because my uh, cybersecurity on my PC is so much better nowadays but i used to used to receive emails apparently from nigerian princes um, asking if i would help them to smuggle money out of nigeria um, and uh, i always used to find these i used to like receiving these emails because the stories that came attached with them were so entertaining and you might think to yourself well how could anybody believe uh, an email offer of $3 million just simply for providing your bank account details to enable $15 million to be transferred into it. Um, but police uh, reckon that at one time in the early 2000s, there were something like five people sitting in hotel lobbies in London every day uh, waiting to meet people connected with such, such scams. Uh, and there's even a story of a Brazilian bank official 
who was persuaded to invest $247 million in a non-existent airport project in Lagos. Um, and the money was never recovered. And the bank, um, of course, then collapsed. So these things have do have real-life consequences, of course, apart from the, the bank which collapsed there in Brazil. There's a very sad story, I believe, from the Czech Republic when an incensed investor in one of these schemes went into a consulate, a Nigerian consulate, um, and shot dead an official there because he blamed them for not making sure that this sort of thing didn't happen, which was very unfair uh, because the Nigerian government used to publish regularly full-page advertisements in The Economist magazines warning people not to have anything to do with such scams. But um, this investor didn't see it like that. So, yes, they can be quite... Uh, they can have tragic consequences. Um, but nevertheless, I think the stories that they these con artists spin are really really interesting one of the things actually which i learnt i have to say from this uh, guy victor lustig who sold the eiffel tower um he had a set of 10 commandments for how to be a successful con artist um, and one of them which i think applies not only if you want to be a con artist i think it applies in lots of other situations in life his rule his number one rule was be a patient listener so i hope all of you will continue to be patient listeners to behind the bottom line and i hope you enjoyed today's story castles in the air I'll be back next week with a story called Cyber Romance, which is about someone who finds the love of their life online. Lots of people meet their partners online these days, but this case is maybe a little bit extreme. Please subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcast or whichever app you use to make sure you never miss an episode. And tell your friends, write an online review or write to me directly at james.rupert.schofield at gmail.com to let me know what you think. Until the next episode of Behind the Bottom Line, this is James Schofield saying stay safe and goodbye. <laughs>